You are listening to SPN, the Sports Podcasting Network. Game, set, podcast on the Sports Podcasting Network. You seem at home on the court. Let's say that I've played a role. Welcome to Game, set, podcast. I'm Dwayne Rollins along with Kevin Laramay. This is our tennis show. Kevin, how are you? I am doing great. Excited for this show, Dwayne. I've been a tennis player and fan for decades. Being a little sport I've played more uh, in the recent years and that I follow a lot, not just because of the rise of Canadian tennis as a whole for the last decade, but uh, because it's a, it's a sport that we like to play, but like we like to watch and we try to relay and we, we think we're close. And, ah, I can do that. Yeah, we don't. We don't serve like Milos, but uh, I love this sport. I grew up as a one of my great sporting heroes as a child was Boris Becker. I, I for some reason I was in he was very young when he won Wimbledon when I was a young kid that used to play a lot of tennis as a kid. It was one of the sports that I played the most, probably the individual sport that I played the most. Um, I like a lot of people learned to play the game just hitting a ball against a wall. Um, I lived beside an elementary school and I used to just walk over every day and just hit that ball against the wall and I got pretty good at it for myself for being self-taught. Uh, as I said, Becker was my hero. I used to try and emulate that big serve as a nice. kid. And unfortunately, I didn't grow up to be six whatever like the, that Boris did. But uh, um, I do still enjoy playing it when I can, although it has been a while now and I need to get back out in those courts. But uh, you, this – For me, sorry, go ahead. the hair of Andre Agassi in the uh, early 90s, late 80s. When I first was watching sports on my television in my playroom when I was a kid, it was Agassi versus Sampras. It was that time. Michael Chang. Michael Chang attracted me to watch tennis because of the fact that he was not necessarily good technically, so he was always out of position, but had to do always exciting and very uh, spectacular plays. It caught the attention. Players like this just uh, build my childhood of being a sports fan and a tennis fan, watching those great athlete on TV and just it, it was a great time for tennis and I think we're back there it's just such a great sport yeah and it's a world sport of course and the it, the uh, four majors are, are always the top of the sports calendar for even here in North America maybe not as much as it is in the rest of the world but certainly when the Masters or sorry when the Masters I'm talking about golf now suddenly <laughs> when because we were talking about the Masters tournaments off air that's how I made the mistake but when the, the Aussie Slams, Open yeah. Yeah, the Grand Slams come on. They, they're the top of the news story. Um, and that's how this show is going to work, Kevin. We're going to focus mostly on the Grand Slams. This, of course, is our Australian Open preview today. The, the Aussie Open will get going late at night on TSN here in Canada. We are a Canadian show. We should put that out front for those that don't know. But uh, we uh, will focus on the world with a little, little bit of talk about the Canadians, which are relevant finally in the world of tennis which is part of the reason why this is exciting too kevin uh but yeah. we'll do mostly the majors or mostly the uh grand slams and then um do some bi-weekly shows maybe in between the grand slams that sound good that sounds perfect it's a it's such a great type of season as well because it builds up and there's a little break and rebuilds up again with paris with wimbledon there's a little break and then you finish with the u.s open which arguably the most covered in here, North America, of the four, even though Wimbledon and Paris and Australian Open, like Dwayne was saying, are huge in our market. It's sports. It, this sport is covered a lot in North America, especially here in Canada as well. With, uh, like you say now, like Milos, Genie, uh, Pospisil, they're, they're relevant in the top tier of professional tennis, which for a long period of time, we were struggling to get an athlete in the top 25. Now we're talking about getting athletes 
in the top tens. So uh, yeah, it, it's really the rise of Canadian tennis. We'll probably talk about this in a, in a future show, but uh, just it's a great blueprint for any sports organization to turn themselves around and uh, open themselves up to new ideas, new uh, new technique, new innovations, and just go with it. And we've seen that over the last decade. All right, and we'll of course bring experts on when we can for interviews. Uh, we are. We tend to try and do interview shows, although we, we have shows that uh, which is just our, uh, us offering our analysis as well of the Sports Podcasting Network. Now this is our 18th show, 19th show. Kevin, help me out. Yeah, uh, 19th show. 19th show on the Sports Podcasting Network. You can get any of your sports there, and we, we needed to get this niche in. It's uh, one of Kevin and I's favorites. So on that note, Kevin, how about we take a very brief little break here, come back and talk about uh, – our main issues we're seeing on the men's side of the draw. And welcome back. Format we're going to do today, this is our preview, uh, kind of not only of just the Australian Open, but of the year in general, I think, Kevin. Uh, the Australian Open is, is the official start of the uh, second half of the season, I guess Brisbane would have been, but <laughs> they're minor tournaments, but... Uh, Certainly, uh, the Aussie Open is the unofficial start, if not the official. So, uh, the first talking point I had is, is you got to start with Djokovic. Uh, we voted for him. We on Five Rings, our Five Rings podcast, which is our amateur and Olympic sport podcast. We vote for our athletes of the year, World Athlete of the Year, and Djokovic was our winner in 2014 because of just his dominance, and he was even better in 2015. We didn't give it to him this year, but he certainly uh, is, is an athlete that just transcends all of sport. Really, uh, doesn't get the pop. Sorry, yeah, go ahead, Kevin. You were going to say that doesn't get the popularity. I think there's such a thing as Novak Djokovic fatigue, where we're so used to seeing him there that it's not exciting to talk about. It doesn't get the clicks. It doesn't get the rating, the ratings, because we expect him to be there. So uh, new players and Federer gets more of the attention because the story behind it is a little bit more interesting for viewers per se. But uh, technically, Novak Djokovic is the best player in the world. Oh, yeah. He's, By far. Uh, Technically, he reminds me of Lendl as a kid. And I say that because Lendl was very technically proficient, a guy that was at the top of his game, the best player in the world for a couple years running. Uh, I think Djokovic has a little bit more um, longevity to his, his uh, top-of-the-line career than Lendl did. But he's just a guy that uh, was never loved because of a lot of different reasons. Although that said, I think recently Djokovic has tried to – portray himself as more fun-loving and friendly on the court. You'll see him doing some fun stuff when he wins and trying to interact with the fans out there. And I, I can't help but think that that maybe is on purpose because he has to look at, at Rafa, who's still, even though he's been not really at the top of his game for a couple of years now, is still on the top of his commercial game, right? Federer, he's you know the outstanding elder statesman of the game now. But uh, Djokovic needs to get his sort of uh, attention outside the court too. And, and maybe he's tried to to refocus himself a little bit. But the key to that, of course, Kevin, is to win. And at 82-6, and six, his match record in, in 2015, he wins a lot. He wins and wins and then wins. And one thing, too, with Djokovic, Dwayne, is when you look at Djokovic play, he's a very efficient player. He wears the other player down from baseline to baseline power and uh, just gets every single ball, runs on the court athletically, but not necessarily spectacular-wise. And you mentioned Rafael Nadal. Nadal was, it was, and I say was because we don't see the same Nadal nowadays that we used maybe five years ago because of injuries and uh, difficult times on the court. Uh, he used to have a very flashy, very charismatic, and very spectacular style that Djokovic doesn't necessarily have, even though 
He's more efficient than Nadal. And that would explain the, the adoration or the devotion that the fans do have for Nadal because it, it, it looks like magic. And when you don't know how he does it, it's magic. Djokovic, we know how he does it. But he does it over and over and over and over again. And it doesn't have the same impact on a viewer. But uh, on paper, and his legacy will be bigger than all the other players playing right now, maybe outside of Federer. The one question I would have, Kevin, uh, this is, of course, the year of the of the half major, so to speak, if you want to talk about the Olympic tournament as well. And if you we're going to really break that one down on five rings for those that are interested as the season progresses. But um, how many of those five do you think that uh, Djokovic can win this year? All? Yeah, All five, but real, real, if injuries, uh, if he's uh, healthy and if he has a, the, the same consistency that we've seen by him, all five. But I would say three, e- not easily, but uh, three would be an easy prediction to make. All right. Yeah, I think three is, is the over-under for sure, is what you're looking at right now. So uh, I'd put the over-under at 3.5, and I'd be inclined to go over at, at this point. He was, of course, just uh, three or four majors last year. Uh, the so, French, of course, so is as usually the top. If, if you were a betting man and you were seeing the, the prop bet right now on one of those – Sports betting website or uh, uh, lottery, you would take that bet right now for over under over three and a half made well grand slam for Djokovic this year. Yeah, and uh, including the Olympics, including the Olympics. Yeah, if you're talking about the five, the, the Olympics, including that as a, as a grand slam, a half grand slam. So some people like to say, but I think that it probably is. And certainly the next person we're going to talk about, uh, it, it did propel his career a lot. Um, but I would put the three and a half as my over-under there, and I'm inclined to go to, to four. I'm inclined to say that he, he slips up on one, probably the French maybe, um, but uh, certainly the rest uh, are, are there for his taking. Let's, let's move on to that, that other player that I talked about that really did propel himself into the top five, uh, for sure, Andy Murray, with that Olympic win now four years ago, well, three and a half, we're, yeah. we're not quite in summer yet, but uh, can Murray establish himself as the clear number two this year, Kevin? Well, he made such a great, I don't want to say comeback, but such a great leap forward in 2015 and trying to and not broke the dominance of a, uh, not the Djokovic, but, you know, the, the Federer, Wawrinka, uh, that tier. He was able to come back to that level after a difficult 2014. 2015 has been better for Andy Murray. He was able to uh, to get the wins necessary, to get the, the, the Grand Slam necessary. And now, this year, he has a lot of uh, confidence and it's an Olympic year. He know what he did in 2012. And for him, winning that Olympic game in London, in Wimbledon, was able for him to lay the groundwork to eventually win Wimbledon. And for that, it's a boost of confidence. It's, for him, once he achieves something, he, he's very pragmatic. Yeah, he's going to say yes. He's, he's British, yes. So he's pragmatic. But for him, it's not necessarily easy. The, the mental aspect of tennis is not the easiest aspect for his game. And once he does great on a certain level... He does see realistically that he can achieve the second one. And now I think he does think that he can challenge Djokovic in great games. And if he can get to the finals or uh, semi, depending on what the seeding is, against Djokovic, he's feeling confident now. And I think that's the biggest difference from Murray now to Murray last year and the year prior. I do want to clarify, Kevin, something. Uh, Andy Murray, you said he was British. He is British when he wins. Yes. Scottish. When he loses, and I say that as someone with English heritage, so there you go. Um, I do think Murray, this he is prone to to be the guy that that can step up. He's sort of the 
the, the in-between. There's sort of a new generation that are emerging up, and then you have the old guard. I think Murray's the guy that's sort of stuck in between those two generations, and he has the potential at some point to be the clear number one. I'm not sure how long his reign will be when he gets there uh, because of his sort of positioning, but uh, certainly I would look to Murray to establish himself as as um, as the number one or as an establish as a heir to the throne of the number one. They had great Davis Cup uh, success this yeah. past year too. Can he propel that? We'll see. Well, um, uh, w- the way I would describe that, Dwayne Murray, when he gets to be the number one, if he stays it for, I maybe expect to be like a four or six months. It'll be a transitional number one from the old generation you were talking about. That Djokovic Nadal. It's hard to say Nadal in the old generation, but Nadal Djokovic Federer. Federer is even way older. You have Murray, and then you have the Nishikori, Raonic, uh, Warinka that are coming stronger. So yeah, Andy Murray is like the man out of time in that list. And he will be a transitional number one. And the man who's the transition from the biggest name of the game eventually fading away and the new young kids moving up to take on over. So yeah, he'll be that transitional number one. Yeah, we're going to come back to that a little bit. It was my final point uh, of the day is, is sort of, uh, you know, whether stands that are ready to take on or, or whether Milos can make a jump forward or, or what have you. But I did want to come to one of the older guard, uh, a player that has really fallen off in the past few years. Injuries killed him. It, really, they did. Uh, and we're talking about Rafa, of course. Um, is there a final act? Is there a Don? We you know, we thought Federer might have been done very, very briefly for a while, but he he ended up proving us wrong there. Can Rafa do the same thing, Kevin? He might be able to come back if you look at Rafa's body. The way it, it changed a little bit. It's not as muscular as he used to be. He used to be the biggest athlete in the world tennis, not size wise, but muscular ratio, the, the amount of muscular for his stature. And I think it was one of the reasons why he always gets injured. The fact that a lot of ligaments, a lot of uh, uh, bruised, ripped, torn ligaments in his career. And that is usually the case because of bigger muscular mass for what your body can realistically uh, sustain without injury and when you're playing a sport like tennis with a lot of stop and go a lot of lateral and uh, horizontal movement your muscles move a lot and if your muscle mass is too high it brings a great amount of uh, of uh, tear and wear and tear on your uh, your joints and your ligaments and that's what happened in Rafa's case and Rafa was kind of like a, a, an experiment as a tennis player because he was built physically differently than the other uh, athletes and over the years well actually i think it probably didn't help him but it actually hindered him and caused the majority of his injuries and they're uh, uh you call them long-term injuries and uh, not recurring ones but very similar every time he injures himself it's always a ligament so yeah i think that's the reason why rafa's career was uh, put on a back burner because of those muscle and ligament injuries all right. Uh, the next point I have written down on my sheet here is Father Time versus Federer. Although I, th- I think I should write it Federer versus Father Time because Federer seems seems to be winning that battle, Kevin. Well, Benjamin Button would it, would it be interesting to, <laughs> to mention that because if you look at Federer now, Federer from five years ago, kind of looks younger. It's kind of <laughs> it's kind of weird. I, I don't know if it's because he of a healthier lifestyle. He's a very healthy lifestyle. He looks leaner now. He looks a, a more healthy, peaceful, mature experience. Those are the words that come when you look at Federer play grace. And you know, grace on a tennis court, you might sound weird, but when you're fluid in your movement, you don't have that hard stop and go like Nadal. Look at the injury in both his career. Very different. Very different in the length too. 
and that's the style of play dictates that because it's a human body wears and tears. But if you use it correctly, you have longevity. And Djokovic, and especially Federer, look, he's the most, the, the prettiest player. I don't know how to put it in different terms, but when you watch Federer, it looks like it's an art. So it's just, he amazes me every single time I watch him. Well, if you look at the personalities of these characters here, like he, Federer is like a fine glass of champagne or something, right? Like, and that's how he feels. Like, that's what it's like to watch him. He's, he's very refined. He's a refined gentleman of the European jet set, right? And his game kind of matches that, in my opinion. Um, very, such a great career. And you have to respect him at this point in time. But uh, how does he do it? I don't know, Kevin. Um, yeah, it's practice 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 it's literally that uh devotion dedication and discipline and yeah that's what the three d's there you go triple d's is what made federer what he is today my final point here i will before we move to the women is is and there's an interesting matchup if you if you look at the draw in the australian open um the round of uh, 16 draw would be milos raunik versus uh stan um that to me is an interesting up and coming who is going to be the next one to just stands already there. That's not kid ourselves. But can can a guy like Milos, um, this is our Canadian coming out a bit here and he won Brisbane recently. It's just a two fifty event, I get that. But against Federer though, nonetheless in the final. Yeah, Federer was sick, but yeah, anyway. Exactly. <laughs> Come on, man. Um, Don't burst my bubble. There's a lot of caveats to that win, but nonetheless, after an injury, an injury rated, um, injury filled season in 2015, Raonic does seem like he's really improved his game, particularly his volleying game. Um, is he going to be able to step up and be in the same conversation as some of these guys soon, or are we looking at a guy that is? There's no harm in this. There's no foul in this. Uh, that's just a guy that's going to be like you know number eight to number twelve for for a couple more years and then sort of fade away. Yeah, I think he has in him to push forward. We do know that he has the ambition. He's been outspoken about it. Being number one is not just a goal for him. It's a reachable goal. It's a the end in sight. He sees it. He was close. He was top five uh, a year and a half ago because, uh, yeah, last year was uh, rough. Uh, but for him, Milos Rauner is now finally healthy. Finally doesn't have any... Big lingering and longing injuries. He I was able to recover his ankles and his Achilles tendon was able to recover better as well. So he has the power back in his legs, which means he has the power back in his serve. And that means he has a confidence back. And all those things together makes you believe in the sleeve. And Milos Raonic is coming into confidence heading into the Australian Open. We've seen what Raonic can do on hard surface when he has confidence. We've seen it in Montreal. We've seen it in Australia before. We've seen it in uh, the Australian Open. When he's had confidence and he's, uh, he's healthy, he can do great things. And right now, uh, the part of the table where he's in, it's not necessarily easy because he's going to have to face Warinka, and then he's the same part of Nadal. But the road to the quarters or to draw on the 18th and the quarters is not that hard and he can take advantage of it and I think he will. I do like a road to the final that doesn't include Federer and, and Djokovic though and, yeah, and that's, yeah, that's what we're looking at. I would take his chances against Murray and against Stan um, a little bit more than I would uh, and, and Rafa obviously than, than I would those other guys although that's always been not just uh, Milos's issue but other players in his range they struggle against those top five players but we'll see uh last thought on the on the draw before we move to the women on the canadian side i think papa his draw is decent uh opportunity to perhaps meet uh 
uh, Djokovic in the third round. I think that would be something that would be good and, and you know a nice goal for him to get to that game. I'm not too sure match. I should say I'm not sure he'll uh, get past it. But uh, hey, uh, that's Papasol. I like I like Papasol's game. I think he has a chance to get top twenty consistently um, if he can stay injury free, Kevin. No, yeah, exactly. We talked about a a great salary earlier when I was talking about Nadal back in the days. Well, the post PCL has a certain it factor. He has a certain charisma. I don't know if it's the the light brown blonde hair, the fact that he's always smiling and he's looks like he's having the time of his life on the court. That might have something to do with it. But the post PCL have that hit factor that makes not just a good tennis player, but when he's a good tennis player with that little something else, there's uh, maybe a star in the making. So I really like post PCL too. Yeah, one well, last thought. We're talking about the overall year. Uh, Papasol, if he can get consistently playing there, Milos continues to play well. This is probably Daniel Nestor's last year. Playing competitively, I think Canada is going to want to really focus on that Davis Cup this year and, and perhaps uh, make a deep run into that competition like they did a couple years ago. And uh, I don't think they've ever been set up better for it, but we'll get to that when we get closer to the Davis Cup, Kevin. And, and the Olympics with Nestor and Pospisil as a, a team for Canada doubles, I have the shot to make it far in that tournament. All right. Let's take a, a real quick, quick break and come back and talk about the women. I am proud to announce that SBN is launching the most prestigious Hall of Fame in the world of niche podcasting. The SPN Sports Hall of Fame. Not just one sport, sports Hall of Fame for all of the world of sports. We have the one and only niche podcast Hall of Fame that everyone needs to follow and listen to and respect as the authority in niche podcasting Hall of Fame nominations in the world of sport all time. Kevin. I have tears coming down my cheeks right now, Dwayne. It's a great moment for SPN, a Hall of Fame, something that for me has a great meaning, if none whatsoever, because it's just fun to talk about who deserves to be in the Hall of Fame, who deserves to, to do it, and we decided to include you, the listener, in it. Yeah, you have a little homework to do. Every Patreoners, every supporter of this show on patreon.com slash Network has a ballot for the SPN Sports Hall of Fame. For this year, because it's the introduction of the year, send us your five, any sport. The only only requirement is they have to be retired for five years. But outside of that, all sports, all athletes are fair game. Kevin, uh, here in Toronto this past year during the Toronto Blue Jays' run uh, to the uh, deep into the playoffs, uh, there was T-shirts that uh, got very popular, and they said Toronto versus everybody, or everyone, I should say. Um, I think we should make the similar things that say Serena versus everyone. Yeah. Because that's kind of what the women's uh, game has evolved into in the last few years. Serena Williams. Now, the one caveat I'll give is that she hasn't played a full match since the U.S. Open, uh, whether it's fatigue, whether it's burnout, whether it's whatever. Uh, she just hasn't been able to get through any a match. She's pulled out a couple from injuries. She hasn't been in a lot of competitions, but that's kind of her way. And when the um, it gets important, she shows up. 
But eventually, will that catch up to her? Will they close the gap? Is there anyone out there that can consistently challenge her? There will be, that's for sure. There will be eventually a nemesis to Serena. But I think you're right when you're mentioning uh, that. I think eventually it's going to catch up to her in the fact that you cannot always just turn it on when it's the right time. That gets harder and harder to do once your career gets more long, once you get to the end of your career, and that's where Serena is. For a, a woman tennis player, she's already surpassed a lot of players' age, and she's in her 30s, and she's still... Uh, early 30s, yes, but she's still pushing forward. She still uh, has a lot of things to prove, and she is in a way in her prime time, but her game is very physical, very powerful, almost, not almost, very intimidating, and that goes, well, it's one of the first things that goes with time. So we'll see. It's not her finesse that is making her being so dominant is the actual power of her game. So yes, time will catch up to her eventually, but will she, will she, she be able to start this tournament the right foot to just open the open the valves and just go plow, plow through and finish a match and move on and move on and have seven victories in a row when you didn't have a full match in uh, months. It's it's not that easy to just restart the machine, and I hope that uh, she's able to do it. But uh, we'll see. I think it's it gets harder to to do every year. Yeah, I look at the rest of the the women's matchup right now, and and what I see is I I see some contenders that might be able to break through in that they're teenagers now. Um, I like the the Swiss girl, uh, Belinda Benick. Uh, she she beat Serena in the Canadian Open last year. So there's there's opportunities like that. There's some players out there that might be able to step up, but I don't think they're ready yet. Then you look at Azarenka, you look at Sharapova, you look at the kind of those people that are listed as their main competitors, Kevin and. I don't know. Like they've just never been able to be be close consistently. One occasionally, every so often, maybe there's blips where they step up, but it's really an outlier when when uh, Williams loses matches at this point in the point in time. So if I were a betting man, and I have been known to be, um, I would be putting quite a bit down on Serena. Although I wouldn't be getting much back. The odds, yeah. the, your money line on Serena, are like is like one point oh five or something. So I think uh, you yeah. get more interest in your money if you just leave it in your bank account. But that's not a lot, anyways. But uh, than putting money on Serena. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, there's no value in betting Serena for sure. Um, Outside putting like. $20,000 on her and getting $22,000 back, which at this case would make sense because you make a little bit more money. Just putting $2 and getting $2.20 back doesn't, it's actually $2.02 back, doesn't quite cut it. All right. We're going to talk about Jeannie Bouchard in a minute because we are Canadian. Uh, but <laughs> before that, like just to talk about the general, the women's game, we were say, saying in the, the break between this that, you know, there's been times in the history of tennis recently in recent memory even where the women's side of the draw has been the one that we would have been talking about more the 20 30 minutes of conversation easily on that whereas now it's the opposite the men have more intrigue there's more storylines there um the women are just it's serena versus everybody and that's difficult to sustain conversation with so um i don't know is that is it healthy to have a dynasty like that kevin or would you rather see a little more depth in there i I think you need at least one contender like you have you know, yeah, Nadal, Nadal Rao. Bova, you know, you need yeah. two. You need two. You need a nemesis, and you need you need a star and a nemesis. That's what you need: a good guy and a bad guy. It's good to have dynasties. I think. I, I think it's good to have people that it's amazing when they lose, and everyone is, takes note when they lose. But yeah, when it's this dominant, it becomes very difficult to sustain interest, and certainly, you know, especially in the first round, the first few rounds, like. It's just it's not even a competition when she plays. Like when Serena shows up on the court and plays whoever she draws, you know, whatever Serbian woman, you know, or whoever that she draws in the first round, it's not a competition. It's it's an exhibition. And that's 
really not why we watch sport. Uh, the only thing that can take her down is injury, and that's not necessarily something that's very compelling. But um, certainly, uh, just hearing- to be fair, Dwayne, it might be our perception because of our. Uh, age, we're a little older. We are more aware of the bigger name recognition that the women's side had a decade ago. There is a lot of up and coming Jeannie Bouchards in this world. There is a lot. But outside of Jeannie Bouchard herself, not a lot of them are catching the attention. And, you know, that's what we see on our television is the one that do catch attention. So it's hard for us to go down the roster of the women's side to be like, yeah, I'm interested to see her because there are. Not, I don't want to say bland because that would be insulting. I don't want to say that, but there's a, le- there's a lack of characters on the women's side right now, and that's something that you're not, not lacking in the men's side. Yeah, you talked about Jeannie, and we'll, we'll go there to, to end the women's conversation because she did have a run to the final of, of a, a tournament in Australia there. She had had a, like, I don't know, there's no other way. It was a train wreck of a season in 2015. Like, there's just no other way to put it. From being the darling of the of the scene, uh, the potential to go up and be a competitor to talk to, uh, to compete with those top women consistently to not ranked, not seated, or she's ranked, obviously everyone's ranked, yeah. not seated is what I meant. Um, it just was a train wreck of a season. But yet, starting with the U.S. Open, where she unfortunately had a weird injury in the dressing room uh, that derailed that, uh, she seems to maybe have it back in line now. So can this be the year that Jeannie's army will have something to cheer about again? I think so. And they're back in the birthplace of the Jeannie army, Australian Open. It's a place that for her has a special connotation. She had her first great success. Yes, at Wimbledon, when she was a junior, she won that. But she had her first great success in a Grand Slam at the Australian Open. And for her, she's going to treat this tournament as a rebirth, as a second coming. It's the second coming of Eugenie Bouchard. This year, Jeannie is going to try to replicate what she did in 2014. And this year, she doesn't have the pressure and uh, the anxiety related to that pressure to defend those points because she did not last year. So this year, it's her second coming. It's the time where she's free again to play. The pressure of the points, the pressure of the lifestyle, the, the, the environment she's in, the coaches, the, the families, the relationship. She's used to it now. It's been a year more. She, she, she lived all that last year. This year now, it's time to get the results back. And I really do feel we'll see something special happen at the Australian Open. All right. Doesn't have long to wait. Uh, she, because she is unseated, will uh, meet a, a seated player in the second round, uh, the Polish girl, uh, Rowenski, Rowenska, pardon me. Uh, so she, uh, she'll play early on in this tournament against a seated player. Um, we'll see. Time to tell. Uh, what are you looking forward most in the, uh, the next uh, couple of weeks, Kevin, to wrap the show up? If, uh, if the projected quarterfinals for the men do happen, I do like a semifinal that would uh, Djokovic and Federer because of the way they're seated and in Nadal, Murray, or a uh, uh, maybe Stamarinka, Murray, and maybe an all-Swiss final because uh, who knows, Federer might be uh, in right time and one of the last shot he has to, to win the Australian Open uh, with, I don't know, but Djokovic. So the, the quarterfinals for the men will dictate the, the rest of the tournament because of... Yeah, it's going to be do or die. It's, there's like four, five, six players in the men's side now that if Djokovic is not on his A game, they can challenge for a title. And we'll see that in the quarterfinals. So I can't wait for the quarterfinals for men. So uh, eight days from now, I'll be really riveted to my TV. Um, I'm a homer. Um, I am going to be watching the Canadians very closely. I think I really like what I saw with Milos in Brisbane. 
So I am curious to see whether he can continue that role. And the I draw, think he'll be in the quarterfinals, by the way. I think they'll be upset and Milos will be in the quarterfinals. Yeah, the draw is somewhat favorable for him. I could even see if everything went perfectly for him on a surface that it, that Milos is good on. Um, I could even see him making the final. I don't think he's ready to derail a Djokovic. Uh, there would need to be a couple upsets along the way for something truly unique and special to happen. But I am going to be watching him very closely uh, in this. And I'm also going to be watching the doubles draw I, I'm with Nestor. Uh, I thousand wins just finished up. We talked about this on our Five Rings podcast uh, in detail the other day. What a remarkable career for one of the best doubles players of all times. And I think as we're nearing the end of his career, uh, we should uh, cherish uh, whatever runs he has left in him in the majors. And hopefully there'll be one this week as well. No, exactly. And Daniel Nestor will we'll really follow his, uh, his season this year because, yeah, like you mentioned, probably his last. And if he can get another, another Grand Slam and who knows, another gold medal, then he will be, without a shadow of a doubt, the best doubles player in the history of tennis. Yeah, I got to got to say that the gold medal would be the crowning achievement to me. Yeah. If if he wins a gold medal, he should just drop the drop the racket and walk off the court. Like two gold medals 16 years apart would be not unheard of, but it's something so uh, mind-boggling to think of that uh yeah, so in four different Olympics in the span of four cycles if Nestor gets that gold medal this year with a different player that was about five years old when he won his gold medal, a little older, he was seven years old when he won his first gold, winning the gold with him, it would be something special and that would be the crowning achievement of an entire career. And like you say, drop the racket, retire, slam that lens for the last time and be forever remembered as one of the greatest doubles player in tennis. All right, and on that note, Kevin, it's game, set, match on today's show. You were listening to SPN, the Sports Podcasting Network. Visit us, sportspodcastingnetwork.com.